Please turn with me in your Bible to Judges 10. Judges chapter 10. There's a story told of an African chief who had a man come to visit him in his court. And he was making decisions. And this man that came to visit had eight cows. And he had the eight cows tied up 20 feet away from the chief. And in African style, much in their tradition, he begins to bow down before the chief. And he says, I have your eight cows. And the chief says, what do you mean, my eight cows? And the man goes on to explain When I worked for you, I stole four of your cows, and they have now become eight, and so I'm here to return them to you. The chief goes, who arrested you? Who who took you captive? And he said, Jesus has arrested me, and he's set me free, and Christ has convicted me that I need to make this right. He says, you can throw me in prison, you can beat me up, but I have to return these cows And I'm at peace at whatever happens. And the chief looks at the man and says, if God can do that for you, I'm going to let you go. Go home. So he goes home. And a few days later, one of the friends comes to the chief and he says, aren't you glad and excited to have your eight cows back? And the chief said, forget it. I can't sleep. Ever since I've received these eight cows, I cannot sleep. Because if I would have peace like that man, I'd have to return a hundred (laughs) cows. And tonight, we're going to talk about repentance and what it really means. This summer, I had the chance to go to a pastor's conference, and I took in a little workshop with a father and his three sons. And it was a really unique opportunity to hear from the father and the sons. And one of the sons said, the Christian life is repentance. The Christian life is repentance. A lot of times, I think that we falls short a lot more than we would like to admit. And maybe our expectation of ourselves is far greater than God's expectation ever was. And the reality is we are going to sin and we are going to mess up and we are going to fail. So if we're going to do the Christian life well, we need to know what is the path of repentance. And so tonight, in story form, as we go through Judges 10, we have a clear picture of what it means to repent. And this is my goal tonight for all of us, is before we leave tonight, is that we do have a head knowledge of repentance, but even more so, a heart that's convicted to repent before God. So let's pray. Father, as we look at your holiness, we do acknowledge that we fall short on such a regular basis. And sometimes we just get tired of repenting, tired of confessing. And Lord, tonight we just pray that you would move through the power of your spirit, that we would see these areas of it in our lives that we need to turn from. God, if we've become complacent, if we don't believe that you can work, would you forgive us? And we give you this time, it's valued time with you, and would you bless it in Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 10, verse 1 reads, after Abimelech, there rose also to save Israel, Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo. That's an unfortunate name. Who's your dad? Dodo. A man of Ishakar, he dwelt in Shammer in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years and he died and was buried in Shammer. 
Abimelech, of course, was the son of Gideon, lived a very sinful life. We saw his end at the end of chapter 9. Now we just get this very brief glimpse of this man, Tola. And Tola was used by God to save Israel, to defend Israel. He's referred to as a judge. He's one of the judges. A judge is a deliverer, not a judge in the sense that we see and view a judge. So God raised up this man, Tola, We don't have the details, but he was used by God for 23 years in Israel. In verse 3, after him arose Jar, a Gileite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth-Jar. Havoth means towns, so it's towns of Jar to this day which in the land of Gilead, and Jair died and was buried in Camon. For 45 years, Israel has peace and prosperity, to the point where Jair's sons are able to each have their own town. It'd be great just for each of our children to have their own house. Wouldn't that be incredible just to be able to gift them a house on a wedding day? Could you imagine entering into your marriage without a mortgage? That would be phenomenal. So these guys not only had a house, they they had their own town, their own town. So we see there's great peace and there's great prosperity under these two judges for a 45-year period. Look at the response of the children of Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You would think with blessing, with prosperity, with peace, that the children of Israel would fall in love with God in a greater way. But instead, they do get complacent in the time of blessing. They turn away from God and they do evil in the sight of the Lord. We don't have the exact details of the evil that they committed, but they're turning their back upon the Lord. This is more than just a struggle with sin, flirting with sin, trying your best to follow the Lord, but tripping up. This is saying, I want to go in the opposite direction of the Lord. You need to be careful, I need to be careful when things are going well. When there's 45 months of blessing, if there's 45 weeks of of blessing, if there's promotion after promotion, raise after raise, it's very easy to get our eyes off of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 verse 11 reads, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commands, his judgments, and his statutes, which I have commanded you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwelt in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. God knows the human heart. And when things are difficult, we tend to press into the Lord. But when we're full, When wealth is being multiplied, it's easy to forget the deliverance of the Lord. That's exactly what happened for the children of Israel. Also, it seems in this pattern and circle for Israel is when the leader is off the scene, they stop following God. So think about it in your own life. If a pastor that you value or a mentor or discipler is all of a sudden gone and no longer a part of your life, you know, high school kids, college kids, you, you go off to college, you graduate out of the university and move to, to a new city, and all of a sudden, your mentors are gone. That, that church support is gone. 
Your, your parents aren't in your day-to-day life like they, they once were. Is there a then in your life that comes at that point and says, well, I'm not, I'm not following the Lord anymore. We've really got to examine, are we following a person or are we following Jesus Christ? Jesus is the one who gave the invitation, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And anything else is going to lead to rebellion. Anything else is going to lead to a very dark place when we're following a person. Every person will let you down. Every person will die, but Christ is the one to follow. Notice also that it says the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is their pattern. This is their cycle. They would follow the Lord for a period, but then they would come back to doing evil. The Proverbs say it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Only a dog does that, right? Do you do that? I hope not. I sure hope not. Only a dog does that. I'm going to save you the details, even though I want to go further into that. But we've all seen it, haven't we? And we, we, as the children of God, this is the children of Israel. This isn't people that don't know the Lord. When we go back to, to what, it, what is evil, it's rebellion in our lives. And this is Israel's rebellion. And look at the progression. And they served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, they just went for it. They went for the buffet of idolatry. I'm just going to take a little bit of everything. There's seven nations that are listed here. It says, and they served the Baals. They served the, the Ashtaroths. We're created by God to be a worshiper. You've probably noticed that. There's something inside of us that says, I'm going to worship something. I'm going to worship someone. So they do evil in God's sight, they forsake the Lord, and they begin to serve these different idols. What do we know about some of these idols? Baal was the god of fertility and prosperity, the god of rain specifically. So if you bowed down to the god of Baal, the belief was you would have children. The belief was that your crops would do well. It was prosperity, it was pleasure. Astaroth was the female cohort of Baal, the god of the sea. And Moab, the god of the... Moab was Chemosh, which was the fish god. Kind of strange, right? But remember, where is Israel and these nations located? Right upon the Mediterranean. And so you've got to have a god that's going to help you catch fish. Because catching fish is, is prosperity. And as we look at a few of these gods, it's very easy to see that it was tied together with pleasure and prosperity. Ammon, the the god of Ammon, it says the people of Ammon, we know, was Molech. And Molech was the god of fertility and the god of war. Involved in the worship of Molech was prostitution, just full-on blatant sexual sin. We see throughout the Old Testament that even the children of Israel would sacrifice their own children unto death. Human sacrifice to the God of Molech in order to have the blessing from this God. The God of the Philistines was Dagon, your Dagon God. And if you read through the Old Testament and you get into Samuel, you'll you'll see this play out with the, the Philistines God. And he's very similar He was half fish and half man and was the God of fertility and the God of crops. Are we above idolatry? We have to understand that these idols were not just images, but it was a philosophy and a way of life. 
How many times do we bow down to the God of prosperity? Say, I'm going to sell myself out because I want to prosper. I want more money. I want my life to be easy. I want my life to be successful. How about the God of pleasure? I don't care what the one true living God says. I'm going to forget him. I'm going to forsake him to fulfill pleasure. And don't get me wrong, God designed pleasure, but designed it inside of parameters, didn't he? He says, I know this is where you're going to experience life to the fullest, abundant life. Anything outside of that's going to hurt you and destroy you, but pleasure can overtake us. We say, no, I want it now. I want it my way. I'm going to go for it at, at all costs. What stands out is what we see at the end of this verse, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So first they did evil in God's sight. Then they served these idols, and then they forsook the Lord. It's a progression. It's an avalanche that grows. So maybe you're just kind of flirting with sin tonight. There's no conviction. There's no repentance. Before long, you're going to find yourself in full-on rebellion. You're going to be doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. God sees it. He really does. He sees it in his sight. And then a few more months go by, a few more years go by, and you're bowing down to the gods of this world. People that don't know Christ as their Savior, your life looks exactly like their life. Your priorities are their priorities. Your passions are are their priorities. I can tell tonight, right as I'm talking, some of you are saying, that's me, I'm already there. I'm bowing down to these gods. And then the ultimate step, and the children of Israel went there, is then they forsook the Lord. And this is like a divorce. This is a, a forsaking of God. This is an abandonment of God. This is saying, I don't want anything to do with God, so I can enter into full idolatry with these, these other nations. It's a forsaking of the Lord. God's response. So first we have Israel's rebellion, but now we have God's correction. So the anger of the Lord was hot, against Israel. God gets angry. God has emotion. A lot of times they think that we take the emotion right out of God, don't we? We can't picture God weeping like Jesus did over Jerusalem. We can't picture God being angry. What does it do to you when you read this verse? When you read that The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. All of a sudden, do you get uncomfortable and do you think that God's doing something wrong? Go, God's holy and he's loving and he's just and he's kind. How could he be angry without compromising his holiness? But there is an aspect to anger that's righteous. Jesus got angry, didn't he? In the temple, When the people were being abused, Jesus took a whip and he cleaned house in anger. It was a righteous anger that that came over him. The reason that I think this is difficult for us is we take our human experience with anger and we project it upon God. We know what happens when we get angry and we can't call it righteous, can we? There's very few times in, in our lives, in my life, when I get angry that I can say, that was righteous anger. I was vindicated in my, my anger. It, it, was, it was righteous. No, it's, it's sinful very quickly. So it's difficult for us to think in this way. What I want you to see in God's correction is it's actually proof of the fact that we're his sons and his daughters. 
The most scary thing for us is not for God to correct us, but for God to have no response at all. A father corrects his own children, but he doesn't correct other people's children. And we'll see this in the next verse, or continuing in verse 7. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the people of Ammon. God took action based on their rebellion. God actually sells them to these nations. They become slaves. And this is the reality of our choices. When we're slaves to sin, it becomes our master. But when we're a slave to righteousness, then Christ becomes our master. One's leading to destruction, and the other is leading to freedom. So God takes action because he's a loving father who's disciplining his children. And what I hope we see in this path to repentance is a father, is a father who cares. And if you're the child of God tonight, meaning that you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, the spirit of God lives inside of you, then guess what? You've got a father. You've got a heavenly father that's not going to just let you go when you turn your back on him. When you forsake the Lord, he's not going to forsake you. In fact, he's going to go on the offensive and he's going to discipline you. He's going to oppose you. We see this in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. So when God opposes you in a path of sin and rebellion, man, don't be discouraged. And this is why. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The reason that God's doing this to Israel, the reason that he's hot with anger, the reason that he's selling them to these nations as slaves is because he loves them. And he knows if I just leave them alone, they're never going to get to a place of repentance. So I have got to bring some consequences into their lives to help them get to that place of brokenness and repentance. So our attitude should be one of receiving the correction In verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are an illegitimate and not sons. So we should fear if we don't have the correction of God. That's the worst thing that could happen in our lives, is for God to become passive about our rebellion. It's proof that we are his sons, that we are his daughters. In verse 9, furthermore, we have all had human fathers who corrected us. Yes and amen. And we paid them respect. Shall we not so much readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? So if you respected an earthly father, how much more so respect your heavenly father? For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of holiness. So earthly dads, we discipline the best that we can. But God disciplines because for our benefit. He knows exactly what's going to be best for us. Now here's the key verse in Hebrews. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. No one likes giving a spanking, and even more so, no one likes receiving a spanking. Sometimes my parents would say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I'm like, yeah, right. I don't understand that at all, you know? But it's no fun as a parent to give a spanking. It's definitely no fun as a child to receive a spanking. It's not 
pleasant for God to have to give these consequences, for us to receive, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So on this path of repentance, first we find a departure, don't we? We find a child of God who's departing from God, but the next thing on this path is a wall of opposition. And it's a loving father saying, I'm going to get your attention. You can't continue on this path. I bet most believers in our lives can look back on our walk with the Lord and see his loving hand of correction. Go, oh man, I was so out of line. And I didn't even know it. I didn't even realize it. I was down this path and God in his love opposed me. And that's what the Lord's doing for the children of Israel. So back into Judges 10 verse 8. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years, speaking of these nations that they were slaves to. And the children of Israel, who were on the other side of Jordan, in the land of the Amorites and Gideon, underline harassed and oppressed. The dictionary definition of harassed is to disturb persistently, torment, as with troubles of cares, bother continually, pester, persecute. So these nations are coming and harassing. Oppress means to burden with cruel restraint, subject to a burdensome or harsh exercise of authority or power. Oppress and harass. Hear me on this. If we say, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to forsake you. I'm going to go full on to idolatry. God in his love will allow us to experience the consequence of that decision and he'll allow our sin to harass us. He'll allow our sin to oppress us. If you think that walking with the Lord is difficult, just try turning your back on him for a couple years. And you start to realize, I thought this was going to be a great idea. I thought this drugs and this alcohol was going to be an escape from my problems. I thought it was going to help me mellow out and I would even read my Bible as I would get, get stoned. And you felt the conviction of the Lord. Getting drunk and you felt this conviction of God. Going out and partying. Coming home to God knows who. And the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you can't continue in this. And you keep going for it. It's pleasure. It's Baal. It's Asheroth. I, I can't give up this pleasure. And now years have gone by and the alcohol and the drugs now are harassing you. They're oppressing you. At the beginning, it felt innocent. It felt like there was no harm in this. I've got to have a good job. I've got to have a, a good career. I need to have some security and stability. And maybe there was even some motivation to, to give first fruits unto the work of God. But over time, the money just seemed to get a hold of you. And it became the love of money. And it became your priority and your passion. And at some point you made a conscious decision. You said, money's going to be my master. And then over time, God will allow that money to harass you and oppress you. And the question has to be asked, who owns who? Do you own the money or does the money own you? There's no freedom inside of it. For some, it's sex. And you're saying, you know what, I, I just, I wanted to have sex outside of marriage. I kind of got tired of my spouse. It was truly stalemate. There was nothing happening. So I decided I was going to take things into my, my own hands. No one should have to, to live this way. And so here I am. 
And you're sleeping around with one person. You're sleeping around with two people. And it was fun for a season, but now it harasses you. It oppresses you. You can't go through one day. You can't go through one hour. You can't go through one church service without sexual thoughts bombarding you. There's no freedom. It was one click on the computer. I'm just going to have some fun here. I'm just going to go for it. And now you're in bondage. It harasses, it oppresses, and you've got one choice to make tonight, and it's turned back to Jesus Christ. It's life or death. And that's what it was for the children of Israel. And it went on for 18 years. 18 years before they cry out to God. That's some stubbornness. You might want to just write that down in your Bible in this verse. That's some stubbornness, doesn't it? But we can relate. We've, we've had seasons like this. And verse 9, Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim. So the house of Israel was severely distressed. The oppression and the harassment was just the beginning. Now they're severely distressed. I think of the prodigal son, don't you? The prodigal, it was really idolatry. It was idolatry of self, entitlement. He was going to take his inheritance and go have fun and do what he wants. It's, it's the I want. And here he is, finds himself in a pig pen, thinking about his father's house. It's better to be a servant in my father's house than, than living in this pig pen. He was severely distressed. Now, when we're severely distressed, we need to ask a question. Is it because our rebellion from God, or is it a test or a trial that God has allowed? Joseph made no sin, but yet he was severely distressed. Job, no sin, yet he was severely distressed. Jesus, obviously, no sin, but he was severely distressed. Sometimes there's trials that happen as we walk in righteousness, but there's other times where there's a distress where it's self-inflicted. We're walking in rebellion. We're walking in disobedience. And the Lord's saying, hey, please, please, I want your attention. I want your face. I want your heart. I want your life. God's more concerned with your eternity than your present comfort. And he's saying, come back to me. And if you're at that place right now, tonight, make that decision. Don't even wait till the end of the service. Oh, man, I've been harassed. I've been oppressed by my own choices. My sin is caught up with me. I've reaped the fruit of it. I'm severely distressed. I, I see no option. Well, there's an option. Look what happens in verse 10. It's called repentance. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we've both forsaken our God and served the Baals. No excuses no smoke screens. No, my parents made me do this. No, I'm a product of my environment. If I just ate organic, I wouldn't be oppressed or distressed. <laughs> Nothing wrong with eating healthy, but this goes a lot deeper than gluten-free. Amen? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they get past all this stuff. They, they get past, well, Abimelech was a loser. And they say, we, we have sinned. Church, this is now the next step on the path of repentance. It's a departure. It's an opposition from a loving father. But then it's us owning our hearts and saying, God, I've sinned. What confession means is agreeing with God. So if God says that lying is wrong, 
we agree with God. We go, God, I agree with you. It's wrong for me to lie. Would you please forgive me? God, I agree with you that idolatry is wrong. And these things have taken control of my life. And it comes from a place of, of conviction. Don't waste conviction. Because you never know when the heart is going to get calloused and we won't respond to conviction any longer. When the still small voice of the Spirit, when the Father, 18 years. Do you think God was convicting any time prior to this? Absolutely. See, God's patient. God's loving. God's kind. He's waiting 18 years. It's a lot longer than any of us would wait. And now at this point, after 18 years, they confess before the Lord. Now God has a surprising message in response. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Manoites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. God reviews past deliverance, going all the way back to Egypt, traveling through Joshua and the judges and saying, look, this is all the times when you guys were in idolatry, when you were in rebellion, that I delivered you. Very gracious of God. Verse 13, yet you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your times of distress. This is where we go back and review the prior chapters in the book of Judges because every other point when they came to confession, confession was enough. God said, okay, I'm going to deliver you. Simply by the fact that you've had a broken heart, that you're sorry, that you're agreeing with me about what you've done wrong, and God raises up a judge. But this time, God says, I don't just want words. I want actions. I want fruit of repentance. And this is the next step on the path of repentance. The first is confession. The first is where we get to that moment where we have the aha moment, where we realize I am in sin against God. But then the next step, which is so important, is for us to be in submission. Not only confession, but submission and begin to take action on our repentance. John the Baptist put it this way, the fruits of repentance. Because repentance means this. It means a change of direction and a change of mind. So if I'm headed this way, I go, oh, I need to go this way. So here, Israel's in this place of idolatry. They realize it. Repentance would mean in their actions, they're going to turn away from sin. And God wants to see that. And he says, so far, all I've heard is words from you guys. So this time I'm not going to deliver you. Why don't you go to your gods to deliver you? This is sobering and this is humbling because if my God is money and it comes to a real life crisis, is money going to save me? Does money save marriages? No, absolutely not. If alcohol is my God, and then in a crisis, is alcohol going to save me? No, it's going to make things worse. Sexual sin is, is my God. Is, is that going to save me? No, it's ludicrous. There, there's no way. And the light bulbs are going on for Israel. Baal can't save me. Asheroth can't save me. In verse 15, And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. And so now we see this 
submission coming from Israel, where they're not trying to run away from the consequences. They're saying, God, do to me whatever you desire. This is hard to say, but it's the reality for all of us. We haven't come to repentance if we're angry about the consequences. If you're wondering in your life, if you're wondering in my life, if I've repented, if you've repented, if I'm upset about the consequences, I haven't come to true brokenness before the Lord. Because when true brokenness comes, there's this submission. God, I've sinned against you. Do whatever seems best to you. Lord, I'm at your hand and I am at your mercy. So then with this submission, we find action. In verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. See, because if they're really sorry and they're really repentant and there's submission, it's going to lead to action. And they had a bail-busting party. They said, I'm tired of this daggone God. I'm tired of this Philistine God. I'm, I'm getting rid of it. So that means if there's repentance in my life tonight, that I leave this place studying the Bible with my shoes on. And I go home and I go, okay, there needs to be change. There needs to be action. This needs to go. Fruits of of repentance. And then notice what happens here. God's compassion. God's compassion. God's sweet spot is a broken and contrite heart. And what I mean by that is what God finds so attractive and irresistible is a heart that's broken and repentant and turning away from sin. And I hope you hear this tonight because so far up in point into this message, you're like, why didn't you just stamp an L on my head? I'm a loser. You know, I just feel like such a loser and I was having a hard enough time coming to church and now I'm really regretting coming to church and can't wait to get out of here. No, listen, listen. It's God is compassionate. And no one is ever too far gone. You're never too far gone. You're never beyond the grace and the restoration and the forgiveness of God. You're the child of God. You've walked away from the Lord. You've gone to places that you'd never thought you'd be. And tonight, if you get onto that path of repentance, you confess before the Lord, you submit to Him, you take action, God's going to be compassionate. He's going to restore He's going to pour out mercy and grace and forgiveness upon your life. I have never seen someone who's broken and contrite before the Lord where their actions match their attitude that God hasn't poured out grace and mercy upon. He's far more gracious. He's far more forgiving. He's not going to substitute it if someone's just going through the motions. If someone's playing the game, he can see it. He's waiting for something genuine. But when it's genuine, he responds. Psalms 51 says this, but you, not de- but you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. God does not delight in coming to church. God does not delight in tithe checks. God does not delight in missions trips. God does not delight in serving in the nursery. You're saying, Eric, where am I going with this? Exactly, Psalms 51. God does not delight in sacrifice. See, if we're in rebellion before the Lord, 
And we go, you know what? I'm just going to leave my conscience, so I'm going to write this check. We're in rebellion before the Lord, and we just show up to church, and we think, well, God's going to be pleased with me because I came to church. Don't get me wrong. God desires for us to go to church. God desires for us to give, and he desires for us to serve. But do you know what he wants more than anything else? Is a heart that's right with him. And for those things to flow out of that place. And this is what he desires, a broken and contrite spirit. A heart that goes to God, God, I've messed up. God, I've failed. I can't believe that I was in this place. Lord, you know my heart. You know my attitude. I don't want to leave this place the same. I want to take actions of repentance. And God just begins to pour out his grace. Isaiah 57, verse 15, an amazing verse, an amazing promise. For thus says the high and lofty, one who inhabits eternity. Isn't that an amazing statement about God? He, he dwells eternity. He fills eternity. Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Who do you think dwells with God in this holy place? With him who has a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble. And to revive the heart of a, the contrite ones. It's not going to be a bunch of perfect people that are dwelling with God in heaven. It's going to be a bunch of broken people that have humble hearts that are going to be dwelling with God in heaven. There's going to be nobody in heaven that's going to be going, man, I sure deserve to be here. We're all going to be bowing down before God, going, God, you are so holy, and I am so sinful, and I'm broken before you, and I'm so thankful for Jesus. Because it's you, Jesus, who forgives me. It's you, Jesus, who brings me to this place. When Israel got to this place of brokenness, God has compassion. He couldn't endure the misery of Israel anymore. This is a father. This is a father who's gone through the hard valley of discipline and now sees a changed heart and he brings deliverance upon his children. And verse 17 and 18 sets the stage for next week's study in chapter 11 and 12 where God's going to bring deliverance. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilgal, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. So God is beginning to raise up the next judge, raise up the next deliverer. This path of repentance. Remember the story that I told you at the beginning about the man who'd been arrested by Jesus? In order for him to make it right, he had to return the cows. That's repentance. There was actions that were in line with the repentance. The Christian life is repentance. This is what I'm discovering in, in my life. And please hear me on this. So I'm not in some kind of gross sin. I'm not cheating on my wife, embezzling money. I'm not going downtown and getting drunk. And I don't want you to begin to question and wonder like who is who is my pastor really praise the lord those things aren't a part of my life but there's a need for repentance in my life on a regular basis 
And the Lord's working in areas of my character and challenging me in areas of my character throughout the summer. And things that the Lord's bringing out that I have been and need to repent of and God's growing me. And it's uncomfortable. And I don't like it. But I can tell you this. One of the hurdles for me this summer in this was hiding behind Christian phrases. Hiding behind things in my life where I could just put up a guard with some kind of Christian term that kept me from being convicted about some things that God wanted me to grow in. You know, things like, well, this is, this is my gifting. You know? I just land on the merciful side of things and the encourager side of things. And so this is my makeup. And this is, this is the way that, that God has made me. And I began to realize that's a cop-out for some areas that God wanted to grow me. And I am sure that a big majority of you tonight have checked out a long time ago on this message, because this is why. You said, oh, this is for that Christian that's out doing a bunch of crazy bad stuff. I'm sure they're here. <laughs> you know? Praise the Lord, God's giving it to them. You know? I hope they're listening. You know? I'm going to... I'm going to send this to my friend who needs to hear it. You know? No, I need to hear it. I need the pathway to repentance. See, sin never stays small, does it? It grows and it grows and it grows until there's repentance, until there's confession, submission, and action on the things that God is convicting us. We have a wonderful way to end this service that I'm so thankful for. It's at the foot of the cross. It's the blood of Jesus. It's his broken body. And Jesus broke his body and shed his blood so that we could be forgiven of sin, but also free of sin. And this is just what I invite you to do tonight. And please stay with me. Is spend some time with Jesus, looking at who he is, and invite him to do this. Psalms 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Let's pray together. Father.